Just gonna run this dog to see if we can find any type of uh, human remains that are left. Listen to Where Secrets Go to Die, The Disappearance of Derek Hennigan. From the Detroit Free Press, a new podcast set in the woods of Michigan's Upper Peninsula. Available on Apple, Spotify, Freep.com, or wherever you get your podcasts. So, I'm a little headstrong. My parents claim I came out of the womb that way, but I blame my job. Investigative reporters are taught, and they're encouraged to keep pushing and to keep digging until you get at the truth. You do that for years, and it starts to seep into your personal life. Suffice to say, or my friends can tell you any number of stories about how my inability to retreat can get kind of weird sometimes. Suffice to say, I'm, I'm not a peach to try to date. At least not until after the background check. But this particular story begins on a cold January night in 2012. I'm out with two of my longest friends, Suzanne, a lawyer in town, and my friend Reka. I think you know her. We're out at Centro, and when dinner's over, I ask one of them if they wouldn't mind giving me a ride to the Greenwood Lounge so I can catch one of my favorite bands. Now, the Greenwood on a Friday night is sort of like that movie Groundhog's Day. It's always really loud and really dark, and the bathrooms are always a little third-worldy. But it's fun, and there's dancing and friendly faces holding up the bar. The Greenwood is a register hangout going way back. It's actually where I spent my first Friday night in Des Moines 20-some years ago after we put the weekend papers to bed. And it'll probably be there on the last Friday that I work at the register as well. The Greenwood is also the place where I met my second husband, Paul. Paul's an old school gentleman who worked there for 25 years, six days a week, until we got married in 2010. My friends teased that Paul and I got together because he kept me well served. (laughs) And while there is a grain of truth to that, we actually had a lot in common. Paul always wanted to be a police detective or a private investigator. I was in a private investigator only for the local newspaper. Because of our jobs, we both heard a lot of really weird stories about things happening in town. And we both heard a lot of bullshit. In fact, Paul left the Greenwood in 2010 because after 25 years, he'd had enough bullshit. He used to tell me that his only recurring nightmare was that it was closing time and nobody would leave. But even after he quit, he still couldn't shake the crazy hours. And so we used to stay up in the middle of the night and watch old spaghetti westerns and and this detective movie, Peter Gunn. Anybody seen it? So Peter Gunn is this private investigator and hired gun, and he works out of this lounge, Mothers. And uh, he's got this girlfriend, the lounge singer, Edie. And She's got a silky voice, and she always seems to be waiting around for Peter, but Peter's dangerous work always gets in the way. I used to tease Paul that he really wanted to be Peter, and he actually kind of looked the part. But in real life, I was the one who was out poking around, and he was the one who was left waiting. On this particular Friday night, uh, I'm out having a good time with friends from the neighborhood, 
doing my middle-aged lady dancing. And I think I call Paul at around 11.30 to come pick me up, begrudgingly. He did. He stopped in for a few minutes to say hi to a bunch of regulars we hadn't seen in a long time. And then we went home around midnight. The next morning, we wake up to my phone ringing way too early. It's my credit and debit card companies calling to tell me that somebody has been on an all-night shopping spree with my wallet. Something like $800 worth of charges in places all around the city from midnight until 6 a.m. So Paul and I get in the car, we go down to the cop shop, and we make a police report, and they give us a case number. And that would have been where most people would have left it. Except... The next week, I get this call from Detective Raymond Carrington of the Des Moines Police Department, and he pretty much tells me that nothing's going to happen with this case. He says that he gets to work every Monday morning, and there's a new stack of identity theft cases on his desk, and he just doesn't have time to go out and look for surveillance video of every transaction made on my cards. So, Paul and I sit down, and we make a list of every transaction, exactly when it happened, and at what location all around the city, and we give it to Carrington, hoping to help him. And for a minute, we're really excited, because he comes back, and he's got this image of this guy using one of my cards at a local Walgreens at exactly the same time as one of the transactions. And, what's more, this man has decided to dye the top of his head a very unnatural shade of blonde. Paul looks at the image of this guy and he says, I remember that guy from the night I came to pick you up. Uh, he had piercings on his face and I had never seen him before. All those years of bartending had taught him to keep an eye on people when he was working. So we tell this to Carrington and he said, well, that's good except we still don't know who this guy is or where we can find him. So me being me, <laughs> I say how about you give me a copy of the image and I'll try to look for this guy myself. Carrington doesn't really have a reason to deny me and so he says, okay. And back at home, Peter Gunn and I are discussing the crime and how it happened. And we decide that if he's probably going to do it again, he's going to go back to the same place at roughly the same time. And so we return to the Greenwood on a Friday night after dinner take a seat at the bar, have a look around, and we don't see him. So I say to Paul, I want to go next door to that new place that opened up in the Ingersoll Dinner Theater. <laughs> that place had made headlines for some criminal activity lately. Paul said he wanted to go with me, and I said, no, you look too much like a cop. <laughs> so I made him stay behind, and I go next door to this place. And at the door, there's the security guard. And... Um, I, you know, tell him the story. I show him a picture of the wallet thief. I said, do you mind if I just have a quick look inside? And he doesn't care. So he shoes me in, and I walk in. I look around, and right away, there he is, the guy with the unnatural blonde hair. So I don't want to lose him, so I scurry up behind him, and I tap him on the shoulder, and he turns around, and he looks at me, and I, I don't know what to say. So I say, you want to dance? He must have recognized me from my ID because he just bolted away without saying anything. So I don't want him to get away, so I go to the security guard and I say, will you please call the police? He's here. He's here. 
And we must have watched too many crime shows because I said, I want to make a citizen's arrest. So while the police are coming, I run next door and get Paul, and Paul comes back over, and the officers question this guy, and it turns out that he has an outstanding warrant for his arrest. And as they're taking him away in handcuffs, Paul and the wallet thief are exchanging some very colorful language. I remember thinking it wasn't very Peter Gunn-like, but I was glad he was there. And then that should have been the end of it, right? That really should be in the end of it, except I can't help myself. The next week at work, I look this guy's name up on our computer system, and I see that he has a criminal record as long as your arm. He's been arrested for forgery, for petty theft, even first-degree robbery. And he, he hasn't ever faced consequences for anything that he's done. I talked to Carrington, and he says, well, now you know what a predator looks like. But to me, that's not really good enough. So I find out who his probation officer is. I give him a call just to let him know that there's another charge pending against my wallet thief. A few months later, I'm called in to do a deposition. And somehow, in all my years of reporting, I didn't really get that when they did that, I was going to be sitting across the table from this guy. So I walk in, and I see him, and I say, oh, hi. I've been dying to meet you. I tell the lawyers at the table, look, my husband's willing to testify that he saw the wallet thief that night at the Greenwood when he came to pick me up. Only he remembered him because he had these piercings on his face and he thought that he was wearing a hat. Well, the wallet thief hears this and he blurts out, I wasn't wearing a hat that night at the Greenwood. (laughs) Thanks. Thanks for putting yourself at the scene. In the end, he gets a plea deal. 14 days in jail. I remember thinking that wasn't enough, but it really wasn't my choice. The prosecutor in the case said that he had some life-threatening illness and that if he spent more time in jail, he'd risk losing his Social Security. I wound up writing a column about the wallet thief and identity theft. And that really is where the story ends. Especially because that August we found out that Paul had a very rare cancer, and that it had already spread to three places in his brain. In the months after that, as we were going from doctor to doctor, from Iowa to the Mayo Clinic, I remember thinking that I would give just about anything if he and I could have another chance to be together. But eight months after his diagnosis, we were up again, late at night, only this time at hospice, saying a really long goodbye. We both hated that Edie was going to have to go on without Peter Gunn. Six months after Paul died, I mounted a a burlesque show. (laughs) (laughs) My daughter Liddy had a friend who was in a burlesque troupe that was performing for the first time at the Blazing Saddle in the East Village. Neither of us had ever been to a burlesque show, so we decided to go. We walk in, the place is packed, and we're working our way up to the stage. I'm kind of maneuvering between a table and the bar, and I turn around, and there he is. The guy with the unnatural blonde hair. I look at him, he looks at me, we're both sort of stupefied, 
I move on. He comes up to me, and he says, I really want to talk to you. And he's really adamant, so I agree to talk to him in the men's restroom. It was, it, it was the only place that was quiet. <clears throat> so inside the restroom, my daughter Liddy's standing there trying to look all tough because she knows this guy's a bad apple. And then he starts to talk. He says he wants to thank me for what I did. He says that he's mentally ill um, and that he's been drug addicted his entire life. He says that um, he's never managed to stay clean for very long and those 14 days in jail helped him get clean. He says he does have a fatal illness, but right now he's got a great job at a barber shop and he's happy for the first time in a really long time. He says, I had guts to do what I did. And he actually thought about writing a response to the column that I wrote about him. And then he hugged me, and he hugged my daughter. And he and his friend just went off into the night. The other thing you learn in my job is that there's always more to the story, right? And that story is almost always more interesting than what you started out with. After headlines break, people have to go on with their lives. Do I really think that the wallet thief went on the straight and narrow after we met that night? I have no idea. But I do know that sometimes people wish more than anything for a second chance. And that night I thought he deserved his. Thank you. <laughs>